Hello and welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 144, when we go back Back to the the past past. and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.com or subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and by listening to another unfinished podcast recorded by other people almost 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. That would be probably the worst way to do it if you're really trying to hear this episode, but we have a probably. book sort of related to that. What are we reading today, uh, Chris? Well, we're going to attempt to solve a mystery that was solved about a quarter century ago, All so right. uh, we're, we're going to give it our, our best here. We're going to take a look at Uncanny X-Men, issue 287, had a cover date of um, April 1992. Story is called Bishop to Kings 5, which gives you a pretty good idea who's, uh, who's starring in this issue. <laughs> uh, now, this one was plotted by Jim Lee, with a script by Scott Lobdell, uh, penciled by John Romita Jr., inked, and uh, we're going to talk about some upheaval in the X-Offices, and this might be a little indication. Of that. We have inking by Scott Williams with assistance from Christopher Ivey, Bill Sinkevich, Bob Wiasek, and Dan Panosian. So that's uh, what five inkers here. Uh, <laughs> uh, we got a couple of colorists Gina Going and Joe Rosas. Uh, letters Tom Orzachowski, edited Bob Harris, edited in chief by Tom DeFalco. And yeah. uh, had a, I think it had a dollar, either a dollar or a dollar 25 cover price. Yeah, this would have at this time. I think it would have been a buck twenty-five. I believe. Probably. Uh, so what we need to talk about is the X books of nineteen ninety-one, nineteen ninety-two. It seems that as the X books entered the nineteen nineties, change was definitely in the air. All I all across the industry, there was a shift from focusing on story to emphasizing art above all else. The superstar artists, uh, really, I think, brought in by via John Byrne. But you know, this goes back to. Uh, guys like Art Adams or George Perez even. Sure. Uh, a generation of exciting new artists had entered the scene and he had taken the fandom by storm. Certainly. For example, Uncanny X-Men issue 267, that was September 1990, cover date. That issue saw the arrival of Jim Lee to the X-Books book, X as a permanent penciler. He'd done fill-ins from time to time, but this was him. This was his book now. Uh, he replaced another of the uh, you know young, exciting artists in Mark Silvestri. Uh, Todd McFarlane's new-look Amazing Spider-Man became the industry standard for the character. Todd would even wind up getting his own adjectiveless Spider-Man title. And then he was replaced on Amazing by another of these hot new artist Eric Larson. Our buddy Rob Leefield took over as artist on New Mutants with issue 86. That was February 1990 cover date. And he gave the team a brand new look, tone, direction, and attitude. A lot of tude, I think. Mm-hmm. 
Then the New Mutants writer Louise Simonson said the following regarding the tail end of her time uh, working on the title. She said, I enjoyed working with him, ex-editor Bob Harris, up until the point where image guys came into the mix. They became the stars and the rest of us were suddenly expendable. I actually thought Bob was very creative and kind of cool. I think I, it was in his best in financial interest to stand behind the image guys, and I got forced out. I guess uh, I just remember the good old days when Marvel was more benevolent. Mm. Now, Bob Harris himself would say of Rob Liefeld's arrival, he'd say, there was energy in his stuff that reminded me of Jim Lee's work, and I like that. So I put Rob on New Mutants, and that's where we introduced Cable. Cable's introduction got people excited because he was so dramatically different to what had been seen in the book up to that point. He was the kick-ass guy. Plus, we had the inherent mystery of who he was. With Jim on X-Men and Rob on New Mutants, there was a sense that something new was happening. Keeping it in the X-Family, Wilson Partasio joined X-Factor as penciler with issue number 62, February 1991, cover date. And you all might be thinking that these names have something pretty obvious in common, but... Uh... Louise kind of tipped uh, the hat to that, I think. <laughs> no, surprisingly enough, we're actually not talking about the formation of Image Comics today. So... Not that we haven't covered that a bunch of times already. Yeah, this is very, very true. Uh, but let's jump back to Uncanny X-Men. Chris Claremont, the guiding force for Marvel's Mutant Kingdom, decided to step aside when it became clear that editorial had become so enamored with Jim Lee that Claremont himself was found himself losing influence over the very books that he had popularized. Yeah. Uh, Jim Lee and Wilson Portacio took over creative plotting duties with issue number 281. That was October 1991 cover date. This was the introduction of the blue-gold Strike Force era for, uh, for the X-Men, with Uncanny featuring the gold team. Uh, so, what of the blues? Well, also shipping with an October 1991 cover date was X-Men, Volume 2, Number 1. Chris Claremont agreed to script the first arc, issues number one through three, of his new title, a three-issue arc. How about that, huh? How about it? Uh, probably because he realized not to do so would be financially foolish. Indeed, X-Men number one sold 8.1 million copies and netted Marvel $7 million in profits. It is listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the best-selling comic book of all time, and I think that same fact is listed as the most repeated it might be. fact on this show of all time. <laughs> uh, Claremont closed his final issue of X-Men with little fanfare, only his initials, and the hyphenated years that he worked on the X-Books. Yeah, with a whimper, unfortunately. Uh, now, in the book, Comics Creators on X-Men from 2006, Titan Books, we're going to be pulling quotes from this a whole bunch during this episode. Uh, in this book, Tom DeFalco sat down with Claremont and other X-Writers, but we'll get there. But this one is about Claremont, where to discuss his his life and time in comics and uh, with the characters that he defined over you know nearly two decades. They covered a lot of his career, including the reason for his leaving Marvel around this time. Claremont would say, It's funny, but Jim Lee's first issue, X-Men 267, which he did with Wills Potasio, was totally inconsistent. But there was some mean stuff in there. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven when I saw the pencils for X-Men 268, the issue with Captain America and the Black Widow. Jim did great Captain America, and his babes had legs to die for. 
His jubilee was just knock your socks off. His Wolverine was great and the villains were amazing. Working with Jim was a lot of fun, but the institutional strains were starting to kick in. The problem was that Jim was just as strong-willed as I was. Jim wanted to do stuff that reminded him of the things that made him get into comics in the first place. He continues to say he wanted to bring back Magneto and do the Sentinels and all this sort of stuff. My problem was I'd already done those things, at least twice. I wanted to try and find some new stuff to do. New stuff for the new millennium, you know? He continues, Rob Liefeld had just forced Louise Simonson off of, off of X-Force, and that left a lot of frustration and negative resonance. Bob Harris was editing X-Men in those days, and he was a lot more simpatico to Jim than he was to me. Looking back at it from the vantage point of the here and now, I can see no one either had the perspective or the incentive to find a way out. Yeah, he says there was just no comfort zone. There was just all this butting of heads, and we got all got boxed into corners. Bob and Jim wanted to say, do what they wanted to do, and the feeling was I could or would not go along. And they were going to do it anyway. I, th I thought I've worked too hard. The time has come maybe to see if I can survive without the X-Men. So I quit X-Men and left Marvel. Mm -hmm. Wizard Magazine, number 22, June 1993 cover date, carried an interview with Chris Claremont. Of his leaving Marvel and the Mutants, he says... My feeling is that I was in a position where I was the defining force on X-Men for longer than any of the editorial staff had been in professional comics, much less working for Marvel. Yet, change in editor to Bob Harris created a situation where all of that credibility, history, and track record meant absolutely nothing. Decision was policy. My responsibility as an employee was to follow that policy or get the hell out of the way. He continues, in comics there is no percentage, much less an incentive for a mainstream editor to have the slightest regard for what the creator wishes, particularly not in, on company-owned project. I have told then-Marvel Editor-in-Chief Tom DeFalco that I fully believe that a lot of the attitude at Marvel today is that there's so much work, so much demand for material, and so much pressure on everybody that who has time to deal with a pain in the ass, even if it's a little pain in the ass? Who has the time to work on any thematic or structural friction between an editor and a creator, or a writer and a, or an artist? If they're static, pull the module and plug in a new one. He keeps going. He says more. He says, if an, edit if an editor has to spend a week smoothing someone's ruffled feathers, that's a week when the editor isn't concentrating on whatever other editorial responsibilities he has. Uh, what else did editors have to do before Twitter came around? I don't, I don't know what it is exactly uh, yeah, I, they got up to. I, but I, you know, I think I, I could jump in here and talk about this. You know, uh, a lot of the earlier editors, I'm thinking of Archie Goodwin, but you know, uh, every a lot of the guys, Murray Boltonoff and even Stan Lee, talked about how they spent hours on the phone plotting out these stories sure. with their artists and their uh, even their the scripters. Uh, and I think as we moved into this time, that just... Be, I mean, nowadays with email, I don't think a lot of these people even know... It's not what as time as voices yeah. sound like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> For forget sure. it about, you know, sitting on the phone and doing it in real time. It's exactly. all happening, you know, at that kind of pace or whatever. So it is interesting. It does seem like a communication breakdown, at least, you know, from Claremont's uh, perspective. Certainly. And he continues and says, You set up a dynamic where what was maybe an occasional necessity becomes standard operating procedure because, hey, who gives a damn? The audience will buy it regardless of the creative theme simply because it says Marvel, X-Men, Wolverine, Ghost Rider, DC, Superman, Batman, Lobo, or whatever. 
Then he went on saying regarding the post Claremont X-Men, he said, There are times I wish I could divorce myself completely, especially from the X-Men. I look at that and I think, this is my entire working life up until two years ago, and it's taken them 18 months to gut it like a fish, to trash the characters, to kill off a tremendous amount of context and cast, and to turn it into, to me, a parody of what it was. Wow, could you imagine him trying to read the current stuff? Yeah, I would. Like, <laughs> I, I heard something recently that he's supposed to go back to writing something for Marvel, but I assume he's going to do it from his hermetically sealed bubble that they uh, <laughs> keep him in and just keep filling up with cash every once in That's a while. That's probably right. <laughs> now, uh, not entirely X-related, but uh, we do have some Claremont thoughts on corporate comics at the time, and, uh, you know, probably still to this day, because it really hasn't changed all that much. He says, uh, American comic book business, from the business side to the creative side, much like like much of American business, deals only in the short term. All of all of our, all of our work attitudes and associations are geared toward the short term, to producing a little story every month as opposed to an album a year or one every two years. More importantly, because the work is wholly owned by the companies, we as a creative talent have no vested interest in it. There is no real reason for a creator to stay on a book or for a creative team to stay together or with a publisher for extended periods of time. Ultimately, they have no stake in the success of the work that they do, other than the immediate need. Uh, the immediate reward of sales. Yep. Uh, Bob Harris would say of Claremont's departure, he'd say, uh, his leaving was huge. I really wanted to work it out. I wanted Chris and Jim to be a team. When Chris opted out, there was this definite feeling of, holy snot. But another part was, okay, we can still do this because I did believe in the characters and the concept and that we could keep it going. And, he says, I was far from happy because I had a great respect for Chris. Even in our worst headbutting period, I recognized Chris as the guy who had created this thing. Well, maybe not created, but it certainly developed it. He, uh, following Claremont's departure, his former partner, John Byrne, would return to the books as a scripter under Jim Lee and Wilsey Portacio's plots, but this did not last long, as you might <laughs> anybody could have guessed, to be honest. Uh... Bird says, between X-Men and Uncanny X-Men, I think I only scripted six issues. The problem was the books were terminally late when I was asked to script them. Jim and Will St. Protasio would both send me the plot, and then they'd send me three pages of pencils. I'd script those because they were, had to be scripted right away and fax the scripts directly to Tom Orzakowski, who was lettering the book. I bought my first fax machine working with those guys. Then I got one of those... Uh, then I got one more, and the one page didn't match the first three pages because they were taken off on a tangent, and they were both doing this. So I was constantly writing and rewriting and rewriting and writing and rewriting and rewriting and writing. It was just a nightmare. Sure sounds like it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Burn continues. I was working weekends, which I never used to do in those days. I finally called ex-editor Bob Harris and said, something's got to be done about this. This is insane. And Bob said, we'll take care of it. What ultimately happened was two weeks later, Terry Austin called me to say, hey, I hear Scott Lobdell's writing X-Men. Whoa, he took care of that. <laughs> yes. And I said, huh? And he says, yeah, at a barbecue at Bernie Wrightson's place, some friend of Scott was there and said that he'd picked up the X-Men assignment. And That's how I <laughs> Problem solved, right? Exactly. They, they had taken care of it. <laughs> uh, he's just picked up the X assignment. That's how I found out. I was I wasn't writing X Men, and that's how they've taken care of it. Nice. That's uh, <laughs> that really is 
so funny and sad, you know, two ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, Harith saith, yes, it was not the best situation. John wasn't being given much time at all to script those issues, and I could see that the pressure was unfair to him, and we probably weren't getting his best work. The point we're trying to make here, folks, is that things were nebulous and new at the X offices. And like, it's funny, though. We have, uh, like, Burns saying he couldn't do the job, and Harris is like, yeah, it wasn't his best work. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's like, true, can't, yeah. Can't, can't, you know, can't help himself from twisting it just a little bit. Just had to get his zits in, you know what I mean? But uh, this whole situation really is fascinating, and it speaks to, you know, the industry at the time, mm-hmm. uh, and obviously... It's we don't need to go into it, but it does, you know, go into then the image. Uh, you see how every they had hung everything on Jim Lee and Wilson Portacio. So exactly when they left, it was really like you know you just pulled the rug out from under them, and under them was a precipitous drop. But anyway, <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about the folks that made this book. We're going to be reading pretty soon, starting with Jim Lee, born August eleventh, nineteen sixty four, in Seoul, South Korea. He grew up near St. Louis, Missouri, in the typical middle-class childhood. Uh, Because Jim didn't speak English, he felt like an outsider, and like many outsiders, he was drawn to comic books, particularly the X-Men themselves, also shunned by society. They're also outsiders, as we know. Jim partially taught himself English by reading comics. He would read every single word on every page until he understood them, including the ads, the letters pages, and the indicia, and maybe even that... One text story that most people don't ever read. That we read. don't ever, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, in Jim's high school yearbook, the classmates predicted that he would found his own comic book company. Hmm. Now, despite loving comics and being considered quite talented, Jim had every intention to follow his father's footsteps into medicine. After high school, Jim would attend Princeton University to study psychology. In 1986, close to graduation, Jim Lee took a drawing class, and that reignited his passion for comics. It may have helped that I was right as Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen were in the mix. Uh, Jim Jim even admits it as much. Uh, Now, uh, Jim got his psychology degree, but postponed medical school and allowed himself a year to break into comics. He agreed with his parents that he would reapply to medical school if his comic career did not pan out. So he spent much of that year drawing every day, eight-plus hours per day, He found that about every couple of months, his artwork made a leap in quality. When Lee befriended St. Louis area comics artist Don Secriace, and uh, Rick Burchett, they convinced him that he needed to show his portfolio to editors in person. Uh, Lee's work was initially rejected by both Marvel and DC. Uh, from Howard Mackey at Marvel, he wrote to uh, in a rejection letter, We looked at your submission over carefully. just as we said we would, and we're sorry to tell you that your work doesn't suit our particular standards. He continues, we do know that to make progress, you must work hard and be tough on yourself. Mm -hmm. He continues to say, your sense of design and storytelling abilities are quite good. However, your figures tend to be stiff and unrealistic. This is not helped on the two pages where you have inked over your own pencils. I suggest that you draw from live models, especially for faces, hands, and perspective. Also, study how clothes fold and and wrinkles, how metal reflects, how leather shines, etc. And then learn to translate that into your pencils. You have a lot of work ahead of you before you're ready to do penciling for a company such as Marvel. But when you see some improvement, you are welcome to resubmit. And then over at D- DC, uh, I guess he would have been editor-in-chief, right? Dick Giordano. 
He was up there, yeah. He was he was some executive at this time. He said, uh, I am sorry to say that your submission does not meet with current DC standards. Sorry. So there was that, too. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, included a handwritten PS, which read, Some interesting stuff. Keep at it. D. Mm-hmm. His first ever published work was in the Salson Publications Christmas special, Samurai Santa No. 1, in 1986. He, did, he attended New York Comic Con in 1987 and met Archie Goodwin, uh, editor who was then working for Marvel Comics. Jim received his first assignment by editor Carl Potts, who hired him to pencil the mid-list series Alpha Flight, which he began with issue number 51, October 1987, cover date. This is his first Marvel story. However, his art did appear on a single page of the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, Deluxe Edition number 17, which hit shelves two months earlier. His first cover art is for Alpha Flight number 55 with a February 1988 cover date. And Jen moved from that title in 1989 to Punisher, War Journal. Yes, we jump ahead to 1989, where Lee would fill in for regular illustrator Mark Silvestri on Uncanny X-Men. This was issue number 248. He also did another guest stint on issues 256 through 258, and that was part of the Acts of Vengeance storyline. Now, um, if you're not familiar with Acts of Vengeance, this kind of pitted Marvel heroes with uncharacteristic villains. Uh, for example, this, these X-Men issues uh, were starring the Mandarin, who normally appeared in Iron Man books. Uh, this was a time when heroes fighting villains outside of their normal rogues gallery were was still novel. It's not like it is today where it's you don't even know who's going to fight Everybody, who. who's the villain? Yeah. I don't even know which yeah, villain anymore. <laughs> which hero is the villain? I don't know. <laughs> uh, now, as mentioned, he'd become the series regular artist with issue 267. Sylvester would leave the title on his own accord to head over to Wolverine, the solo book. Uh, as mentioned, in 1991, Lee helped launch that second X-Men series. It's simply called X-Men. That issue had five different variant covers, which, of course, we figure probably helped to become that yeah, world it had something to do with that, but okay. <laughs> and uh, four of the four of the covers show different characters from the book uh, that formed into a single image when laid side to side, and then the fifth was all of them together—a big gatefold, uh, uh, overpriced sort of dealy there. Right. Hop across the table, or maybe next to him on the table, because this is a scripting situation. Right. And Scott Lobdell. Uh, he was born August 24th, 1960, in Marlboro, New York. He didn't grow up a comic book fan, and he only really resorted to reading them while convalescing after lung surgery when he was 17 years old. He was uh, more fascinated with the idea that people were able to make comics and make a living than actually anything inside the book. So he decided this might be a pretty good career path for him. Uh, he would study psychology in college, just like Jim. But he would come to the realization that he didn't want to spend the rest of his life listening to everyone's problems. He completed two years, which uh, tells you a whole lot about psychology. Those first two (laughs) years are, you know, just brimming with information about psychology. Yeah. Uh, He decided to pursue writing, utilizing conflict and resolution techniques that he learned from his brief psychology background. He worked on the college newspaper as a writer and a cartoonist and would perform interviews as well. The first one was New York newscaster Chuck Scarborough, which showed Scott that he could use the paper to chat with people who he found interesting and who might be helping him uh, get his foot in the door into the comics industry. And so he looked up comics editor Al Milgram and did the interview, and he felt he had an in at Marvel. For the next year and a half, he would regularly travel to Marvel HQ and drop off story synopses. Uh, That's a five-hour round trip he was taking for the whoop of it, by the way. And he began networking with a few Marvel editors. He received multiple rejections. However, one from Tom DeFalco had a handwritten PS that said, 
This story isn't as bad as the last story. <laughs> That's what we call a win. Oh, boy. Story. He was having a celebration for himself that day. <laughs> he would uh, wind up getting a gig on Marvel Comics Presents. Now, Marvel Comics Presents was a bi-weekly anthology series that would launch in September 1988, would run 175 issues until March 1995 cover date. Uh, each issue featured four eight-page stories. Uh, he pitched a story to Tom DeFalco using obscure characters because had he chosen like a bigger-name character, it would have to be uh, okayed by upwards of four different editors who might have a piece of that character. Yeah. So it's better not to ruffle any feathers. So he chose the Global Village characters that appeared in Marvel's 1982 Contest of Champions miniseries. Now, uh, Contest of Champions ran for three issues from June through August 1982 cover, and that uh, was Marvel's first limited series. Yeah, we mentioned that. That's like that's like in a sense. Even earlier than Secret Wars, the first uh, oh, yeah. connected big, uh, uh, you know. Sure, the crossover dealy. Crossover yeah. dealy for comic shops, yeah, stuff like that. So, uh, Uncanny X Men leading up to and following the Image Comics Exodus, <laughs> which, as mentioned, we've talked about uh, a whole bunch before. The X Men books were in crisis on more uh, crisis mode creator wise. On the heels of the brief burn stint we've already discussed, enter Scott Lobdell. Bob Harris said Scott was a guy who hung around the X offices a lot. I barely knew him, but I knew he was up and coming, trying to prove himself. When John decided to leave, I needed someone to script an issue fairly quickly. Scott just showed up at my office door one day, so I handed him the pages and said, Okay, here's your shot. To Scott's credit, he turned in the script very quickly, and it wasn't bad. So Byrne decided to leave, huh? Right, now mm, Byrne yeah. decided to leave. Yeah. <laughs> it was amicable. It's all good. <laughs> now, uh, just like uh, Jim Lee, uh, our man Scott Lobdell was working on Alpha Flight, uh, and he was working on Alpha Flight at this time, and he was happy to take a stab at the X-Men. Later that evening was the Marvel Christmas party where Lobdell found out, in his words, essentially Bob had gone through every name in his Rolodex trying to find someone to script that issue, including the guy that used to deliver the mail. But no one else had the time. <laughs> so that's how he got the gig, and he would become the fill-in scripter for Uncanny X-Men for a few months until it would parlay into his regular gig. I mean, this is how a whole generation of people became comics creators. But it's essentially... Yeah. Hanging right around the place, offices right and annoying them. You wonder why they stopped the tours, folks. You know, it was, <laughs> uh, it was initially understood that Fabian Nicieza would take on writing duties for both at main X-Men books or X-Books, but Harris decided to share the wealth. And so began Scott's time with one of Marvel's flagship books. Brand new guy. Anyway... Uh, even further across the table, down the table, I guess, John Romita Jr. Uh, his full name, John Salvador Romita Jr., was born August 17, 1956, in New York, New York. Uh, he's the son of, duh, no kidding, longtime Marvel Comics artist John Romita. Uh, his mother's name is Valerie Bruno. He would study advertising art and design at Farmingdale State College, graduating in 1976, and his earliest contribution to the comics industry was creating the Spider-Man character, The Prowler, first appearing in Spider -Man, Amazing Spider-Man number 78, November 1989 cover date, when John was only 13 years old. His actual career in comics started with Marvel UK, where he drew cover sketches for books and uh, for reprints. His interior debut was six-page backup called Chaos at the Coffee Bean in Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 11, 1977. 
John would become the penciler for Iron Man, uh, doing uh, work under David Michelini's scripts. Uh, this run would include the character-defining Demon in a Bottle story, which I, I don't think you can mention Iron Man without mentioning no. him being an alcoholic, which is kind of unfortunate in the uh, speedy kind of way with uh, the heroine. But yes. this was uh, Iron Man number 128, November 1979 cover date. Uh, throughout the early 80s, Romita would work on several Marvel books, including the Spider-Man family of titles and Uncanny X-Men. He claims that he and X-Men writer Chris Claremont didn't exactly see eye-to-eye creatively. He was the artist for the launch of the Dazzler ongoing series, March 1981 cover, though he only, perhaps wisely, stuck around for the first couple of those issues. <laughs> those are the big ones still, you know, those sure. are the ones that you want. Uh, he provided some artwork for the first ever Marvel Comics limited series, that's Marvel Superheroes Contest of Champions that we just mentioned, three issues, June through August 1982, cover dates. And in 1986, John Jr. provided the pencils for Star Brand Number 1, which launched Marvel's New Universe line, and we did talk about that uh, in an episode quite a while ago now. Mm-hmm. Uh, joined Ann Nocenti on Daredevil with issue number 250, January 1988 cover date, where he would remain for two years, leaving after issue number 282, July 1990 cover date. Co-created Nocenti pet character Typhoid Mary during his run who I think is still a, a character that's relevant in Daredevil, mm-hmm. and uh, did various projects at Marvel, including stints on Wolverine, Namor, The Punisher, and a family of titles, uh, a brief return to Iron Man for Armor Wars 2, and the Cable two-issue limited series before returning to uh, the uncanny X-Men. By this time, Claremont had left Marvel, and John Jr. was excited to work with Scott Lobdell. While he's the penciler of the book we're discussing today, this is just a fill-in. His official return as penciler uh, of Uncanny X-Men wouldn't be until the landmark issue number 300 with a May 1993 cover date. Mm-hmm. Now, let's uh, get into the book here. All it's right. time to uh, to talk about Uncanny X-Men issue 287. Story again, Bishop Kings 5. The cover features Bishop's buddies, Malcolm and Randall, being riddled with beams, bullets, shots, whatever it is, it looks like it hurts. Uh, in the background, we see J- Bishop's giant face. He's screaming. Inside the book, we open to a full-page spread of Bishop running into battle, surrounded by the Romita approximation of Kirby Crackle. It's pretty, it's all right. Yeah. Uh, he is both take, uh, <laughs> taking and dealing out energy blasts from his glowing fist and his oversized pistol. Yeah, as we're about to find out, Bishop's mutant power allows him to the ability to absorb energy and redirect it. So, even though this page is incredibly busy looking, it's not inaccurate. The caption reads, In the future where Bishop was raised, there was no such thing as a danger room. From the moment he enlisted in the XSC, Xavier's Security Enforcers wrapped himself in the sacred uniform of the legendary X-Men and vowed to use his mutant ability to absorb and rechannel projected energy to preserve Xavier's dream. It has all been on-the-job training. We pan out to see Bishop and his buddies Malcolm and Randall embroiled in a firefight with some outlaws. Bishop insists that they only focus on the outlaws from their time. Randall says... As the Beast once said, we've come to help these humans, not to bury them. Malcolm goes, It's not enough we're about to flatline some seedy 20th century nightclub. You have to start quoting ancient verse from the wit and wisdom of Henry McCoy? This is actually a pretty cool bit to further illustrate that these guys are from the future and that they idolize the X-Men to the point that they remember their quotes and things like that. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but Bishop tells him to shut it before swearing in the name of Cyclops. Okay, dude, we, we, we get it, Bishop. All right, that's, that's <laughs> We didn't need this many references in, in, <laughs> within one panel, dude. You know, by the power of angel. All right. Uh, a reporter pu- pulls up to the scene and comments on just how crazy New York is. <laughs> Where else can you get a good pastrami sandwich and a mutant massacre on the same block? Pretty much just New York and St. Louis. It's funny. I think so. Uh, meanwhile, aboard the Blackbird... The X-Men Gold Strike Force are using a Cerebro unit in order to track down some new mutants. Jean Grey is wearing the Cerebro helmet, and it looks goofy as hell. Yes, Storm says, Jean, the numbers on display are decreasing? Colossus says, that can only mean one thing, Storm. Jean says, Colossus is right. Someone is slaughtering mutants. Again. The news report begins to play, and Storm immediately recognizes Bishop. Uh, They've, you know, met a time or two since his arrival in the uh, present day. Uh, The way the mayhem is being shot, however, it looks as though Bishop might be the one causing the slaughter. It would seem the man called Bishop has much to answer for this night. And Forge goes, and we're just the hombres to ask the questions. I thought Forge was Native American. Yeah, I don't. Is really, Ombre's a? Uh, it depends what how Native we're talking. I suppose. Uh, Professor Xavier radios in to remind the X Men that they're not only heading out to investigate, that they're only heading out to investigate, not to confront. And we'll see how that goes. Back inside, <laughs> Malcolm goes. My mutant power to detect normal human beings indicates the room is clear of norms. Now that is a handy mutant power, I'll tell you. Yeah, I gotta say, it's a good thing he's literally dripping in guns. That's his backup. That's the backup yeah. power. Yeah, that's the secondary. As three XSC fellows keep up the charge against the future outlaws, one manages to give him the slit and shoots Bishop in the back. Hooah! Caught you napping, Bishop! Caught you napping! Bishop says, er, don't think I don't appreciate the wake-up call or the recharge. Had you been in jail, I'd been so long you forgot I thrive on projected energy. Looks like he didn't get the memo in this case. Or read that caption from a few pages ago. I mean, that he would have known. That would have yeah. helped him, yeah, exactly. Uh, then the next few pages feature a firefight between the goods and the bads. The goods win. But not without casualty, because Malcolm and Randall... Are dead. Oh, the two most important characters. The mm-hmm. caption reads, The firefight lasts our eternity. All the time it takes to destroy a life. Several lives. And Bishop thinks to himself, Body armor protected me from the worst of it, but the boys. And he says aloud, Malcolm! Just doing our job, sir. Just our job. At ease, son. At ease. Bishop turns his attention towards Stiglut and the outlaws and uh, informs them quite calmly that he is going to kill them. It's just like, hey, I'm going to kill you now. Uh, And, uh, you know, cue the X-Men. Colossus actually crashes through the roof. Not sure why he felt the need to come in from above, but uh, we're we're not going to cramp his style. You really can't, can you? He says. No. (laughs) No, you will not. Too many here died this day. 
And with that, the rest of the old X-Men swoop in through that same hole in the roof. And this team includes Storm, Jean Grey, Iceman, and Archangel. Storm goes, While we mourn the deaths of all your comrades, the X-Men cannot condone retribution by murder. Further proof that you are not the heroes you claim to be. The X-Men of legend were not afraid to make difficult choices. In fairness, the X-Men did, did agree to, you know, deal with Dark Phoenix, and Cyclops did send his son into the far-flung future not too long before this. <laughs> that I mean, was a pretty difficult choice he had to yeah, make. Decisions there, yeah. are, yeah. <laughs> Iceman replies with, Me? Well, I'm still trying to decide between taste great and less filled. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Uh, we don't need to explain that, do we? I'm not, I'm not going to worry I hope about not. that. Yeah. <laughs> now, Bishop begins blasting in the X-Men's direction when Colossus rushes in to give him a clobber with a kathoom. In one breath, you speak with reverence of the X-Men, while in the next you are prepared, eager to spill our blood. You cannot have it both ways, Bishop. You either stand with us or against us. Bishop goes flying into some debris and winds up impaled by some rebar. Gene says, He might not be the villain we think he is. What are you saying? <laughs> Gene points to a bad guy slumped over in some nearby seating. You see, Bishop wasn't taking aim at the X-Men, but was actually trying to save them. Hmm. What the... <laughs> uh, we still don't know why he was uh, using threatening language toward them, but... I guess all's forgiven now. It was, it was the guy behind them that was the target, right? Yeah, it would all. It, maybe it would be forgiven if, if Bishop hadn't given the team the slip while they were busy chatting. Listen, uh, he doesn't. He doesn't. He, the Irish goodbye. You know what I mean? He just doesn't. It's not his thing. No, we rejoin Bishop as he's walking down a rainy alley because, of course, it has to be a rainy alley. Uh, he slumps down and passes out right into into flashback land. Now, in this flashback, in this flashback, he, Malcolm, and Randall are charging through a tunnel. Yeah, Malcolm goes. It doesn't matter how many Gene Blanding dens young Fitzroy runs. His father's given strict orders to keep our hands off his green-haired little boy. I don't give a flying snicked about politics, Randall. Yeah, we, we only included that exchange so uh, we could say, I don't give a flying snicked. I'm going to be using that in my regular everyday language. Huh? I think so, yeah. Used to it, folks. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, it also allows us to introduce that green-haired little boy. This is Trevor Fitzroy. He first appeared in Uncanny X-Men number 281, October 1991, cover date, as a member of the Upstarts. This was a, a group of uh, mutant game hunters who would assign points to certain mutant targets and, uh, you know, well, try to get a high score by killing them. It's actually a really cool idea that they didn't stick the landing on. Uh, now, during his initial outing, Emma Frost's team of Hellions gets slaughtered, and Emma herself is KO'd into a coma for a while as well. Fitzroy comes from Bishop's future and is basically his arch-nemesis, in a way. So, mm -hmm. yeah, the XSC boys are chasing down Trevor Fitzroy, and Fitzroy runs through some... Uh, like yellow suds or scrambled eggs, whatever whatever it is, it looks gross as heck. It's true. Uh, he catches his foot on a handle and face plants into the stuff. He says, My Magnus, haven't I suffered enough humiliation for one day? 
And uh, Magnus, as many of you know, is one of Magneto's names. Uh, hell, it very well still might be for a while. I'm not sure. Yeah, it could be. Maybe, <laughs> maybe he changed it a little bit. Though, but... I think la- last I heard, he was Max Eisenhart. Oh, uh, right. He might still be. I don't know. Now, uh, Fitz looks at the handle, and he realizes that there's a trap door under this egg mess. And so he decides to descend down this ladder. Eh? In the light? A trap door? I either risk Bishop's wrath or the unknown. Not much of a decision, really. What Fitzroy fails to do while making his great escape is close the trapdoor behind him. You know, it's, it's wide open when the access <laughs> catches up, so it's 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 academic. They know where he's going. <laughs> Bishop and the gang decide to head down the ladder as well, if only to find themselves uh, uh, in a long abandoned sub chamber. At Bishop's request, Malcolm fires off a neural collar to catch Fitzroy. As Trevor hits the ground, a giant television screen activates. And on this monitor is Jean Grey. What? And she says, Mm. Alex? (laughs) Cable? (laughs) Anyone? (laughs) Don't even know? (laughs) Transmission being received? (laughs) Taken totally... (laughs) Taken totally unaware. Both taken totally, <laughs> taken totally unaware. Both teams <laughs> decimated. Mansion security was deactivated. <laughs> activated, activated, deactivated from within. <laughs> Betrayed by one of our own. <laughs> Then Bishop whispers, Team Gray. Malcolm replies in whisper, Bishop, is it possible? Randall whispers, Could we have stumbled onto the war rooms of the X-Men? Gene continues, Professor Xavier was the first to die. Only one left. Powers negated. Our own fault. Really, should never have trusted. We knew so little about. Gene's monologue is interrupted by a. Then Gene says, You may have killed the X-Men, but the dream will never... Gene is then decimated by a rat and turns into nothing more than that uh, Romita approximation of Crackle. And the X-Trader says, Died? Bishop slumps down and screams to the heavens, or, or, or the ceiling of this long-abandoned bunker. No. For years, scholars assumed the hidden sanctum held the secrets of the past. But this tape only poses more questions than it answers. The first among them, who killed Professor Charles Xavier? 
Well, I, I don't want to sidetrack us much here, but I do love that he refers to it as a tape. I know, really. In the, yeah. the far-flung future. It's a, <laughs> you think they're still using VHS or beta? They, they gotta be, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, next, Bishop's flashback moves forward a bit to uh, his visit to the pool. Now, this is a maximum security prison, which is located in the floating graveyard known as Manhattan. Mm, Bishop is given access and is clamped with a powered neutralizing bracelet by a very brightly dressed woman. Her name appa- appears to be Shackle, which uh, I guess works as good as any, right? What do you do for a living? Well, <laughs> look at my name. <laughs> I seek an audience with the witness uh, once known as Labou. Now, we learned that this Labou uh, once held something of a leadership role in the XSE, perhaps? Shackle, S- wh- why do you continue to serve him? For the same reason you abandoned the man. Because he is a constant reminder of all the best and the worst that dwells within all mutant. Also, my name is Shackle. Yeah. You know, that's sort of, sort of the thing uh, that I do. <laughs> uh, LeBeau sits at a seat atop the short flight of stairs in the middle of a completely white area. He crackles with pink and black energy. Uh, and he's got a dame on either side of him. <laughs> Worth <laughs> noting, he does look a lot like an elder gambit, but... Bishop doesn't know that yet. LeBeau goes, Papa turn into the litter. Come to kill me? Judge me? Set me free? I... I discovered the Xavier Sanctum. No secrets from me, Pop. King of secrets, me. But I have... But I have evidence that suggests they were murdered by another X-Man. Knew it, saw it, what of it? Now how do we... How do we know the traitor was never caught or ever brought to justice? You don't know. Never know. But you do. You were there. Witness. Who betrayed the X-Men? With that, Shackle holds a scimitar up to Bishop's throat. Wow, uh, that's uh, some pretty lax prison security, unless she is the prison security, then we, we know how it happened. Yeah, I know the, the lay of the land then. Uh, Bishop has no choice but to leave, and he walks right past Trevor Fitzroy's cell. And Fitzroy says, Money! Money and women for the man who releases me. Money, women, and... Bishop says, shut up, Fitzroy. And uh, Fitzroy does manage to escape just moments later. (laughs) And he hops into a time portal. All right, so Uh, see you later. (laughs) Bishop, Malcolm, and Randall follow. Bada bing, bada boom. That's how they came to the present. Uh, But this is where the flashback ends, which is fine, because we already know everything that comes next. Uh, ben Bishop suddenly wakes up and finds himself surrounded by the X-Men Gold Strike Force. Yeah, Archangel goes, Welcome back to the land of the living. Eh? Do not attempt to move, Bishop. You've been injured. Not to mention surrounded. <laughs> uh, Bishop is at the X-Mansion in their, med- in their medical unit and is pretty pleased to see that the X-Men didn't decide to kill him. Professor Xavier hovers on in. Yeah, he says to Storm, Please take the team and wait outside. I'd like to speak with Bishop alone. Charles, this man is dangerous. Then we have something in common. Again, excuse us. Did Charlie just foreshadow on us? I feel like he just foreshadowed all over us. I feel foreshadowed there. I don't know. <laughs> uh, we're giving the creative team and editors a lot of credit with that. you got to admit. Yeah. Uh, we'll see. Uh, then 20 minutes later, Professor X and Bishop emerge from the room. If the prof trusts Bishop, that's good enough for me. I am glad to hear you say that, Bobby. Let us all hope your confidence in me is well-founded, because, my students, 
I am proud to formally introduce you to Bishop, the newest X-Man. There it is. Dun, dun, dun. Hmm. And that led to what? the comic X-Men, right? And all that, all this and that stuff. Bishop, the, yeah, yeah, a lot of different stuff, yeah. But, uh, I mean, what people remember from this, uh, you know, Bishop joined, that's a big deal. But the thing that people wouldn't let go was this X-Trader, this concept that somebody was going to destroy the X-Men yeah. in, the, in the near future, the distant future, somewhere in the future. And it really captured the imagination of the readership. And... Uh, the uh, creators uh, like to play into that. So just a little bit later, X-Men Volume 2, Number 8, May 1992 covered it. I actually covered this one on uh, on Remarvel the other day. There's the entire thing here. But the quick and dirty of it is, as Bishop is introduced to the X-Men's Blue Strike Force for the first time, he is taken aback at the sight of Gambit. And he refers to Gambit as LeBeau, which may in fact be the first time we learn the Cajun's true surname. Bishop explains... This explains why the witness's reluctance to share his recollection for party regarding Gambit, because they are one and the same. Now, I don't think he ever asked any questions about Gambit, but we won't uh, we won't argue. Uh, Cyclops goes, "Calm down, man. You're not making any sense." Bishop uh, Gambit says, "Not to me, leastways." And then Bishop says, uh, "The witness was a, was the last person to see the X Men alive." before they were portrayed by one of their own. Bishop then gets, get this, he commands Professor Xavier to perform a psi scan on Bishop. He's like, you do this now, man. Uh, Charlie refuses and uh, changes the subject by suggesting they all have a picnic. Seriously. That's a very strange thing to suggest. Uh, <laughs> during the picnic, Gambit and the Bishop get into a food fight. Psylocke wears a bathing suit that looks a lot like Pikachu, and boysenberry pie rogue slaved over uh, a hot oven for four hours making is destroyed. To be fair, the, the thing was cooking for four hours is probably for the best that it got destroyed. It probably wasn't very good. To, I'd love to see this uh, crusty piece of charcoal. <laughs> oh, how Gambit and Bishop laughed. Love that song, by the way. <laughs> That's a good one. Now, suddenly, the fact that there's a traitor among the team falls into the, the back burner. Hey. We're along with the pie. <laughs> no. uh, though Bishop still gives Gambit crap about being a traitor until all the beans are finally spilled. So uh, this is an ongoing thing. Yeah, and the fans were talking about it at the time from the X-Mail letters page in Uncanny X-Men number 292, that's September 1992, cover date. John in Providence says, after reading X-Men volume 2, number 6, and Uncanny X-Men 287, a revelation hit me. Gambit killed the professor. I'm sure we'll find out soon enough. And then this gets no response from the editor uh, reply. Interestingly, this was a Numbered question from John, and the editor actually just skips that number. Yeah, I, I was always drawn to the numbered question yes. letters and letters pages, and uh, the editor here just skips it. That's very <laughs> interesting. That is telling, because usually it is. when those are picked, they would you know go through them. Certainly. Uh, someone named Calder in Millbrook says, Who are those two people in the pool? One of them saw the X-Men die, and the other was a woman with bright clothes. The reply was, one of them saw the X-Men when they died, and the other was a woman with bright clothes. Ooh, very cheeky. Those are very cheeky. Very yeah. clever, let me tell you. <laughs> uh, Luke in Arvern uh, said, I'm very concerned as to which member of the X-Men would dare turn on the team. And if Professor X was the first to die, the one who was supposed to have killed uh, the X-Men must be very powerful. 
The only members of the X-Men uh, that I would say Professor X should not trust are Gambit, Psylocke, and Bishop. And the reply was, Professor X isn't dead yet. No matter what may happen in the future, don't count Charlie out yet. Robert in Nova Scotia says, I just have one question. That LeBeau guy, he's Gambit, right? The reply is, LeBeau might or might not be Gambit. We're not going to commit to anything yet because it will ruin a perfectly good suspenseful story, and we have no idea where... Oh, wait, no. Well, that's it. Um, we haven't <laughs> decided yet, but anyway. <laughs> in, in other words, you could speculate until the cows come home. We're just not going to confirm anything. Yeah, so uh, quit asking, will you? Come on right? now. But uh, instead, they they didn't stop asking. The following month, X-Mail from Uncanny X-Men number 293, October 1992, cover date, David in Blytheville. You hear that, Chris? Blytheville. You think Blytheville. That's, you think that's a real place? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> he says, Bishop is right. The traitor is Gambit. It has to be him because, one, he resembles the witness. Number two, he said, I'm going to outlive every one of you. And at number three, he said, in Uncanny X-Men 287, Gene was killed by a power blast that looked like one of Gambit's. And the reply was, the mystery behind the witness and Xavier's death may uh, has many more twists and turns. So keep watching. Mm. Now, while on the subject of letters, oddly, letters discussing X-Men Volume 2, number 8, May 1992 cover date, that's the one that featured Gambit being confronted by Bishop, that never popped up in the title. The letters page for X-Men number 13, October 1992, discusses the events in X-Men number 7, and then the next time, X-Men uh, Volume 2, number 14, not November 1992 cover date, they discuss what happened in X-Men number 9. Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, we're not saying there's a conspiracy here. It's just uh, all we're saying is it's less advantageous for all of us future researchers not to have the you know the hot takes from that issue handy. So and it's not that they were avoiding it, but it wasn't there. Well, it's, it's interesting because it's not like a regular reader would notice this either. You know, the latest page was always read. And, you know, I feel like this is uh, probably a calculated uh, omission, but who knows? We, we don't mm -hmm. know the truth. Uh, the question is, who is the X-Trader would pop up in letters pages for years to come? X-Fans are not strangers to the concept of long-lingering plot threads. After all, it was a hallmark of the Chris Claremont run. There was always plots brewing in the background, just waiting for the right time to be addressed, and hopefully resolved. Uh, this wasn't Chris Claremont, however. This was a new scripter working under the plot of a fellow who ditched the company not long after the mystery was posed. For better or worse... That didn't stop the speculation. Now we're back to our friends at Wizard. Wizard Magazine, issue 18, February 1993, cover date. This issue revealed the results of a reader poll, wherein folks voted for who they thought the X-Trader would be revealed to be. Those, re those results were, from most likely to least... Forge got 211 votes under the promise that she's better, bitter over a possible relationship between Storm and Bishop. Uh, Forge and Storm were an item which, uh, the f with which the formerly actually proposing to the latter a uh, couple of issues after the one we just discussed. Crazy Forge, the top, <laughs> the top person to be the next trader. Yeah. It's like I think most people will be like, "Who's Forge?" But uh, <laughs> the next one up, Bishop himself got 207 votes uh, with the idea that he only infiltrated the X Men in order to kill them to make them martyrs that that they were so re revered in his time. That's uh, 
just convoluted to be an X-Men story. It is. It truly could have happened. Uh, Cable got 203 votes simply because so little was known about him at this point in time. There were a lot of rumors, but nothing confirmed. Uh, Gambit got 193 votes, since uh, as far as we knew at the time, he was the last surviving X-Man. More on that in a bit. Psylocke got 186 votes. Uh, After passing through the Siege Perilous and coming out through uh, Servant of the Hand, she still might be under their control. So mm-hmm. that, that was one of the uh, new for the new Millennium stories Chris Claremont wanted to write too. Oh. So, which uh, after he actually did write it, it was uh, probably a better thing that he did not. Like, oh, maybe that wasn't so good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Rogue got sixty-two votes because she snaps under the pressure of having both her and Carol Danvers's memories bouncing around her head. <laughs> Uh, Archangel got 56 votes. Uh, the Wings, the Wings, man. They want blood. They need it. Uh, finally, Phoenix got 53 votes because, you know, Dark Phoenix, even though Gene was never actually Phoenix or Dark Phoenix or whatever. That's right? a whole other thing, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> We're not ready to get into that in this episode. No. Uh, more food for thought from the same, that same issue of Wizard, a letter that reads... I've got it. I've figured out who the ex-trader is. It's not one of your obvious choices like Bishop or Forge. This person isn't even a member of the X-team of an X-team yet. It's Franklin Richards. Now, before you throw this letter out, let me explain. Comics have hinted at Franklin getting new mutant powers. Franklin's parents won't be able to handle this, so they will send little Franklin to Professor Xavier to join the X-Men. Then, for some reason or another, the X-Men will battle the Fantastic Four, and Franklin will turn on the X-Men and wipe them all out in issue number 350 of the Uncanny X-Men. How about that? Yeah, how about that? Well, that would have been something, huh? Yeah. Hmm. I'm actually uh, no. I'm actually shocked that that storyline wasn't picked up in more recent years. I mean, it's, it's true. Perfect. It's perfect now, but anyway, <laughs> it's true. But uh, Franklin Richards here as a uh, mutant. It, it, there's a there's another uh, X Men episode we'll be working on down the line about uh, another X mystery concerning the Twelve, mm-hmm. and uh, that uh, Franklin Richards did loom large in the first half of that. Uh, it turned out to be something altogether different, but we will get there somewhere down the line. Uh, now, jumping ahead several years, sticking with Wizard, we're going to look at Wizard Magazine number 58, June 1996, cover date. Now, this included an article titled You Can't Handle the Truth, uh, where they uh, break down the top ten unresolved X-Men plots, many of which uh, we're going to be paying special attention to in the coming months. Also, the simple fact that they could actually come up with a top ten is pretty wild, pretty telling of the way X-Men was written for a long time. And they left a lot out, which is even wilder. It's kind of (laughs) crazy. So, uh, top on their list of unresolved plots, of course, is who is the X-Trader? They write where it stands. When Bishop first appeared on the scene, he told the X-Men that in the future they will be massacred by one of their own. He singled out Gambit, uh, then a new member of the team who was uh, the only surviving member of this future. Bob Harris's response was, You will find out within the next few months, and Bishop will be taken aback by who it is. The wizard response is, We think it's Rogue. Think about it. Bishop saw a videotape of Jean Grey saying stuff like, Powers negated. So little, knew so little, knew so little about their past, and then getting blown away on screen. Whoever did it needed the muscle to take the whole team. 
Rogue can steal, i.e. negate your powers. The X-Men know next to nothing about her past, and she can kick some major booty, especially after adding defeated ex-teammates' powers to her own. And gee, why would the traitor let Gambit survive unless this person had feelings for him? Hmm? Plus, she's been acting a little flaky lately, so she's our best bet. Uh, kick some major booty, huh? Is that booty. one of her big powers? So, uh, who From was it? To post, yeah. You still haven't answered. Who was it, then? Let us know. Hmm. <laughs> uh, so X-Men Volume 2, number 25, October 1993, cover date. This issue featured the climax of Magneto's return to full-fledged cartoonish supervillainry. Uh, this also this is also where Wolverine has his adamantium forcibly newinked from his bones. Yes, of course, this is an idea jokingly posited by then X-Factor writer Peter David while at the writing summit for the earlier Executioner Song crossover. He recalls, Actually, what happened was that they were, we were all discussing how we were going to have Magneto's return be a big deal. The other writers are bouncing around the notion of a huge Magneto-Wolverine slugfest, and I said, thinking out loud, Boy, you know, if I'm Magneto, I don't even bother with Wolverine. I just yank out his skeleton and be done with him. And there was a dead silence for a moment. And then everyone looked at me and said, that's a great idea. And I said, no, it's not. <laughs> and, and they said, yeah, it'll be a great visual. I said, well, sure, but then he's dead. He can't survive having his entire skeleton ripped out. He has a healing factor. Healing factor, if you rip out a whole skeleton, he's a pile of flesh on the floor. He'll be in a healed pile of flesh. What'll he do? Ooze it, people? See, my vision of it was that Magneto ripped out the entire skeleton, not just excises the adamantium that was laced into it. Figures that my biggest contribution to X-Continuity was simply voicing a passing thought. Yeah, this would be one of those bridge-too-far moments and Professor X had no choice but to employ a nuclear option to stop Magneto. And so... Rogue says, Magnus, Professor, what'd you do to him? Professor X says, I took away his greatest weapon, his hatred, his ego, his nightmares. I took them all. I took his mind away from him. God forgive me. Yes, Professor Xavier left Magneto in a vegetative state. Uh, naturally, this is just little more than a temporary setback for the Master of Magnetism. Yeah, that's, that's, as per comic. But that, this is definitely this is a moment that even I know is a, a big, big whoop. Uh, in Uncanny X-Men number 322, July 1995, cover date, the juggernaut gets hurled all the way across the country, literally. That ain't possible. I'm the juggernaut. He couldn't have hurled me all the way across an entire country. He couldn't have. We're telling you, man, he did. And he's attempted to by Beast, Bishop, and Psylocke. Beast goes, the person responsible for your current condition... Psylocke says, the name, Juggernaut, who did this to you? Who, in your own words, is out there? Onslaught. Of this bit, Scott Lobdell would say in Comics Creators on X-Men from Titan Books, we had just come off the events-style Age of Apocalypse storyline and had decided to start doing stories that focused more on the individual characters. All of the X-Men creative people gathered for a big conference, and Bob Harris basically said to us, if you could do any story, what story would you do? I seem to remember that Warren Ellis said that he'd like to do a story where the members of the Excalibur team just sat around and drank beer in a pub, but he knew Bob would never let him do that story. 
Bob told him he could do that story. When uh, when Bob got to me, I said that I wanted to do a story where the X-Men are at home and they suddenly hear a whistling sound. They run out to the front yard and see this massive object flying through the air. It hits the ground in flames and skids the length of a football field. As the dust settles, everyone runs up and they see that it's Juggernaut. He manages to utter one word before passing out, and that word is... Onslaught. <laughs> uh, he continues, everybody in the room was really intrigued, and they demanded to know who Onslaught was. I told them I had no idea. I just thought it was a cool way to open a story. Imagine someone so strong that they could hurl Juggernaut across the sky. I ended up doing that opening sequence, but I still didn't know who Onslaught was. Hmm. When asked for a little clarification on creating a character he didn't actually know anything about, he said... That's how I usually work. Some guys work out every last detail up front, but I tend to unwind my ideas slowly and just follow the character or storyline. I feel like I'm somebody who has a clothesline that's all knotted up, and I follow the line until I get to the end. Hopefully, a story or a character will reveal itself by the time I get there. And it would take a year, but uh, yes, it finally did. X-Men Volume 2, Number 54, July 1996, cover date. Professor Xavier is and has been a bit detached, and he's in his office where he's haunted by his most recent failures. Caption reads, His ignorance is in attempting to reform the psychopathic Sabretooth, who, unleashed, took Psylocke to the edge of death. His inability to save Wolverine from the near destruction of his body and soul. His arrogance in dealing with Magneto, humanity's greatest mutant foe. He looks to his desk where an issue of Now magazine, would think Time magazine, has Graydon Creed on the cover. He's a man who's running for president of these United States on an anti-mutant platform. And uh, believe it or not, he's doing quite well at the polls. Very nice. Uh, he's also the son of Sabretooth and, and Mystique, by the by. Uh, then on the television, he learns that a person responsible for killing a young mutant, Dennis Hogan, at the end of X-Men Prime, which we covered long-term in episode number 106, available in the archives, he's been arrested. And all I can think of is how he wasn't able to get there in time to save the boy. As the assailant is loaded into a police cruiser, he starts spouting off at the cameras. That nudie got what he deserved, man. There's a million who'll back me up. And more every day. You can't stop us. We'll get you all. We'll get you. Professor X chucks a desk lamp through the screen uh, to shut the assailant up. Uh, and then he trashes his office for good measure. <laughs> hey, why not? <laughs> Elsewhere in the mansion, Jean Grey is attempting to scan Juggernaut's mind to figure out just who this onslaught actually is. Onslaught. I know who he is. Marco, go. You have to leave. Now. Huh? You figured it out? I still don't know anything. But I do, Marco. For God's sake, you're in terrible danger. Marco, he's in the mansion. But who's on the phone? Uh, now, Juggernaut <laughs> attempts to, to beat a hasty retreat, and he finds that the environment around him is warped into like a weird Escher Stairs nightmare. Yeah, he manages to make it over to Xavier's study. He thinks to himself, wait, that's Chuck's study, in it? Yeah. Then he says out loud, Chuck, it's me, Marco, Chuck. I'm sorry about everything, I swear. For God's sake, you gotta help me. Don't let me die, man. He's after me. He's after me. And after bashing through the door... Chuck! <laughs> what Marco finds is Xavier's upturned hover chair at an all-around trashed office. He's grabbed from behind by a giant purple hand. Onslaught! Don't! 
Don't kill me, man! And Onslaught says, Kill you, Cain Marco? What a splendid idea. But then, how would that be possible? You're protected by the Crimson Gem of Sitarak. As long as it stays bonded to you, you're indestructible. And so, quick thinker Onslaught forcibly removes the gem by literally reaching into Marco and yoinking it out. Wow, uh, looks like Juggernaut's dead now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now at this point, we finally get a full frontal on Onslaught, including seeing just what's going on inside. As if it isn't already clear, it's Professor Charles Xavier. Uh, Professor X says telepathically, X-Men, this is Professor Xavier. Please give me your utmost attention. You must abandon your hunt immediately. They was hunting juggernauts, by the way. Um, Cyclops goes, Professor, do you think that's wise? I no longer believe juggernaut to be a problem, Scott. In fact, we have a far more urgent matter to discuss. Come to me, my X-Men. So that issue ended with the X-Men going to meet with the Professor, and they don't know that it's their greatest villain, or at least the greatest villain of 1996. Yeah. Um, but we do get the promise of a continuation in Onslaught X-Men number one, August 1996 cover date. And this issue opens kind of familiar. It's a monitor with Jean Grey on it. Ooh. Huh. She Jean- says... Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> she says... Alex, Kurt, Sean, Cable, anyone? The mansion has sustained massive damage. I don't even know if this transmission is being received. If you can hear me, you need to know what happened here. The X-Men have been hit hard. Worse, we were taken totally unaware. Both teams, Blue and Gold, have been decimated. If you respond to this distress call, be advised that mansion security has been deactivated from within. As hard as it is for me to say this, you need to know. We've been betrayed by one of our own. Incredible as it sounds, Professor Xavier has gone insane. The most powerful psi on the planet is no longer in control of his mutant ability. Near as I can tell, Juggernaut was the first to die. I'm the only one left standing who can make this message, and he's seen to it that my power's negated. It's our fault, really. We should have never trusted that there were no after-effects from Professor Xavier shutting down Magneto's mind. We knew so little about the psionic damage that would result from... Wait. I sense he's here. And then, just like the first time around, Gene's monologue is interrupted with a... Bam! You? Of course, child. Did you truly believe, even for an instant, that, I w- that you would escape the same fate which befell the rest of your team? I don't believe you. I can't believe you. You may have killed the X-Men, but the dream will never... And then, just like the first time, Jean is decimated by a Berzrat and turns into nothing more than an Adam Kubert approximation of that John Romita Jr. approximation <laughs> of Kirby Crackle. Well, you know, if they get around to it eventually. Sure. Professor X says, die. On the contrary, Jean Grey Summers, the dream is dead. So there it is. And uh, they did a really, really good job of making the uh, the original uh, the original transmission right. fit. Yeah, yeah, uh, they, they, making that work. And it doesn't, it doesn't sound too forced. Right? No, it doesn't. It, there's only, like, one miss, like, one wrong sentence in there, which, I mean, if it was Marvel of 2019, God only knows what we'd get. Oh, but, they, uh, they would have disregarded that first transmission. <laughs> it it would have been Psylocke sending the message. Sure, or whatever, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Now, uh, so, 
the X Trader actually leads directly into Onslaught. And uh, we'll talk about how crazy that is in just a little bit here. But first, Scott Lobdell, uh, we get some words from him about tying the Onslaught in reveal into this long dormant X Trader plot thread. He says. There was an old Bishop storyline where, in the future, he learned that someone had betrayed the X-Men. All the fingers point to Gambit, but it was actually the one person we'd never suspect, Professor X. So, how does this all tie together? Later on in that same issue, Onslaught colon X-Men number one, Onslaught himself explains everything to Bishop. Yeah, he says, Bishop, do you appreciate the extent of what has transpired? For months since the moment Zavi, since I wiped clear the Xavier, since I wiped clear the slate of Magneto's mind, as my consciousness grew, I spent hours trying to formulate a plan to spread my sphere of influence across the globe. As it turned out, I needed you for that. I needed the memories of uh, uh, you had of having lived through the so-called Age of Apocalypse. Which we've covered in extremely long form, available in the archives. That's right. In order to learn how Ensabar Nur accomplished less benevolent version of what I intend to achieve, therein lies the irony of it all. For I could never have done what you came from the future to stop. I would never have betrayed my children without your help. Thank you. So, Scott Lobdell's knotted-up clothesline approach to storyline actually worked? Uh, this time it did, yeah. Uh, Everything <laughs> came together here. It really Holy did. He, cow. You know, he really was able to make it all work. And, uh, you know, this, you know the, the whole thing about a time traveler wreaking their own demise is uh, as old as the first time traveler oh, yeah, story. Trophy, but yeah. he, did, he did make it work in this case, you know, and in a way that is satisfying. To be mm-hmm. a long-time reader. Uh, speaking of Scott, though, here's what he had to say regarding the fan reaction to the uh, reveal uh, and the onslaught fallout. He said, It was not the most well-received storyline in the world, and there were a lot of reasons for that. I can blame myself in that I was at odds with another writer and some of the over some of the Xavier's buried thoughts, but that became the basis for onslaught. Maybe I was being overprotective at the time, but the the idea that Xavier would bury his yearning for young Jean Grey? Way too creepy for me. I think it was an idea Stan tossed into the earliest pages of X-Men and quickly realized that student-teacher mutant love was a bad idea. I agreed and thought it should never again be revisited. He continues, The Onslaught story ended up less than the sum of its parts, largely because of all the internal politics that was going on behind the scenes. A lot of people at Marvel just hated the idea of Heroes Reborn, and so they didn't do their best work on the Onslaught crossover. So it looks like they, some people wanted uh, Xavier to have been Onslaught because he suppressed his lust. I guess, yeah. Right? That's usually what the impl- implication is, which is yeah. sort of a corny way to go about it, you know? <laughs> Certainly. Uh, and people were annoyed with the, you know, Heroes Reborn. That's, it's so weird how this all comes, is all so circular, because Heroes Reborn is where Jim Lee comes back. That's right. You know, it's so crazy that, that you, you couldn't write this story. I know. You know, and it make, all, it, had make to it this unfold. neat and tidy. Yeah. yeah. It really is, uh, it's, it's amazing. 
so with all that tied up, though, what was the deal with the witness fella? Uh -huh. Remember this guy? I do, I do. Now, around the turn of the century, Gambit and Bishop would each have their own ongoing series, as if you could believe it or not. Uh, Gambit ran 25 issues, plus a wizard number one half issue, and that ran between February 1999 through February 2001 cover dates, and most of this volume was written by Fabian Niciesa. Bishop, the last man, saw the titular, titular character thrown into the far-flung future where, in a twist from his first adventure in time traveling where he'd go back in time and meet all of his heroes, he was now remembered as a legendary figure in ex-history himself. Hmm. What the... Uh, Bishop Cole, the last man, ran for 16 issues between October 1999 and January 2001 cover dates. The final two issues dropped the last man from the title and returned the character to the present... Uh, quote unquote, that, that present, and also tying in with Marvel and X Men crossovers, Maximum Security and Dreams End, respectively. The two series would converge in a miniseries called Camp Gambit and Bishop Colon Sons of the Atom, and this ran bi weekly for six issues, cover dated March through May 2001. To kick off the event miniseries, Marvel released Gambit and Bishop Sons of the Atom Alpha, February 2001 cover, as well as Gambit and Bishop Sons of the Atom Genesis, March 2001 cover, the latter of which would feature reprints of the first appearances for both characters. Yeah, that's uh, Uncanny X-Men number 266 for Gambit and Uncanny X-Men number 283 for Bishop, as well as their first meeting in X-Men volume 2 number 8. Fans at the time were assured that the Gambit and Bishop solo series would, rec would recommence after the six-part Sons of the Atom wrapped up, and uh, that didn't happen. No. So, uh, Chris, why are we talking about any of this? <laughs> well, during Gambit and Bishop Colin Sons of the Atom number two, March 2001 cover date, the title characters head to New Orleans in order to uh, well do something having to do with the uh, X-Force villain strife. Um, Gambit brings Bishop to a mausoleum in order to introduce him to an old friend. That old friend turns out to be... Lordy, Lordy, the witness himself. Oh, guarantee it. The witness mm -hmm. is here, boy. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's actually a pretty cool scene because we see that the witness is a collector of, like, various comic paraphernalia and sci-fi paraphernalia. Wow. Like, in this first shot here, he's got a broken shield from Captain America, a Fantastic Four banner, a sentinel head, Magneto's helmet, and... Maybe a Batman toy? I don't know. Mm, all right. uh, <laughs> in later scenes, we see uh, various Doctor Doom masks, uh, Scarlet Witches, Scarlet Drawers, uh, the Greatest American Heroes costume, an AT-AT from Star Wars, or an AT-AT, I don't know how you say that, uh, and a whole lot more stuff. It's just a really, it was one of those feast for the eye sort of uh, pages, if, if only, you know, it was a little bit better drawn. Uh, Bishop says to the witness, but you are LeBeau, aren't you? You were called the witness in my time because you were uh, alleged to have witnessed the fall of the X-Men. That's what we wanted you to believe, pup. Who was I to tell you anything different? And he goes on to explain, You want answers, pup? Okay, let's see if I explain it to you with words you might comprehend. You see, I don't just exist in the here and the now. I exist at a confluence of both past and present. I was there in the past when Xavier was crippled in battle with the alien Lucifer. And I was there when Magneto first began to gather his brotherhood of mutants. I was there when a time display Scott Summers and Jean Grey trek across the desert with little Nathan's cradled in their protective arms. And I was there when Wolverine finally succumbed to the tender caress of death. I see all possible futures and all the distant past is one. To me, tomorrow happens the same as yesterday. These all just memories to me. I don't know the whys, the hows, or the why-fors. But for better, for worse, I do exactly what my name implies. I witness. Got it? 
Wonder if he's got that same, uh, but I never interfere rule that the watcher always ignores. I, I hope he does. I hope he does. I'm sure, I hope uh, the witness ignores it as well. That's fine. <laughs> now, this uh, makes Bishop's head hurt. Ours, too, by the way. It's true. <laughs> uh, this issue wraps up the revelation that the witness has the long-believed dead uh, and seen fought in hell strife just hanging out somewhere else in the room. He's just laying there, and, and like we saw him a few months earlier in hell fighting with X-Force, who were visiting hell, and it's like they just turn their heads. It's like, oh, there's Strife laying on the floor. It's he like the weird. He's fine. Yeah. Yeah, he's fine. Uh, and of course, he needs the X Men's help. Uh, they all head out to a diner to talk it out, in, but in costume, which is always hilarious. Uh, not really much more to say about this one. No, no, just uh, notable because the witness and Gambit are, at least in this story, two different people. I mean, it's it's nebulous though. Uh, the witness would wouldn't really turn up again until being killed off by the Marauders in X Men Volume Two, Number Two Hundred, August two thousand seven. Two two thousand August two thousand seven. Covered it even. <laughs> and this was after the No More Mutants edict, uh, where you know for a handful of years there were you know no more mutants. But then. The Messiah was born. The Messiah child, Hope Summers. And the Marauders were busy hunting down and killing many mutants with precognitive powers in order to ensure that they'd have full control and influence over this Messiah child. This didn't work out so well for them, but hey, at least they killed the Witness. We think. <laughs> for now. The Witness could be around now. I will, uh, he's at I, the confluence of the time. I wouldn't know. He's, you know, he's, it's true. He's at a confluence of time. Whee! <laughs> Gotta throw some crawdaddies in that soup there, gumbo. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, so that that's quite a, quite a story there, I gotta tell you. Uh, it definitely is, it's cool that, that it was a thread that was dropped, you know, by, well, earlier than Scott even, by Jim Lee and stuff, and then they were able to work it out every bit of it, you know? Oh, yeah. And uh, without going into too much detail, that doesn't happen so much, you know? It'll be like... No. You'll get a little bit of a resolution, but you'll be left usually with more questions than when you started. So, uh, we can have two people wearing. We can have the same person wearing three different costumes on the same page, and no one will draw attention to it nowadays. No one will I don't. It, you know what I mean? Like what what the problem is, or you know, uh, you could even have an entire publishing initi- initiative surrounding a certain new character that never does anything. <laughs> it's true. Anyway, try to guess what I'm talking about, folks. If you think you know, you can write to us about with that answer or with anything that we talked about in today's show. Scott Lobdell, Jim Lee, the X-Men, the uh, X-Trader. Yeah, if you uh, were around during this, let us know who you thought the X-Trader was. That would be a uh, great thing, yeah. I let think us... we, all had, uh, we all had our theories. No, we, I would love to know, and I'd love to hear the support for uh, what your X-Trader was. You can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. We do have a Patreon if you want to get exclusive content from us and uh, also help us out. And to produce the show for five bucks a month, go to patreon.com slash Chris and Reggie. We have a Facebook, I think. Facebook.com slash Cosmic Email History. <laughs> we also have an Instagram at Cosmic Email. Same thing on Twitter. We're at Cosmic Email. I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. Go to Chris's personal site that he updates every single day. Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com. It is a repository for reviews on DC Comics with uh, tons of pictures and information and often snaps of uh, fun advertisements. But but currently, and you're almost you're wrapping up now, 
your getting there. look at Action Comics Weekly every single day, a new uh, issue or a new piece of Action Comics Weekly. Yeah. So uh, go check that out. Chris is on InventorEarth.com. You can also, while you're surfing the uh, worldwide whatever, uh, you check out chrisandreggie.com. That's uh, the show site. You'll be able to find all of our show notes, our images, our links, all that good stuff, as well as the vaunted archives where you can actually find, listen, and hopefully enjoy uh, everything in the order in which you were meant to find, listen, and enjoy. So that's, that's good. Right. If you want to find our, uh, if you look at Age of Apocalypse, that's where you should go, chrisandreggie.com. That's your best bet. But uh, I think that's all we got from this week, Chris. Got anything else for him? I think that'll do it. Well, until next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill traitorously. See ya. Friends. How many of us have them? Friends. Ones we can depend on. Friends. How many of us have them? Friends. Before we go the word we use every day most of the time we use it in the wrong way now you can look the word up again and again but the dictionary doesn't know the meaning of friends and if you ask me you know i couldn't be much help because a friend's somebody you judge for yourself some are okay and they treat you real cool and some mistake your kindness for being the fool we like to be with some because they're funny others come around when they need some money some you grew up with around the way And you're still real close to this very day Homeboys through the summer, winter, spring and fall And then there's some we wish we never knew at all And this list goes on again and again But these are the people that we call